0: The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes to us from the Psalms, Psalm 103, a Psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God, we thank you for your word story of your grace. A new expression found its way into my vocabulary uh, this past past month. Some of you may already already use this expression, but it's one that I've never heard. Big doings. Friend and I were driving up to the river tubing trip we had a few weeks ago as a church, and we were coming upon the park where we were set to meet and the park was packed with tubes, with cars, with people, with summer. And my friend turned into the parking lot saying, we got some big doings today. And I was like, I- I'm-, I'm sorry, what did you just say? We got some big doings today. And I-, I sounded like a foreign exchange student as I was trying to wrap my mind around the expression, big doings doings? And then a week later, as I was reading a book that was set in the mid-1850s, they were describing a Christmas party happening at the rural church, and a character asked another, are you going to the big doings tonight? (laughs) Big doings, a working definition to get us all on the same page that I didn't have at the time. A big doing. Something significant enough to create a draw for lots of people to want to join in. For many of us, fireworks on the 4th. That would be classified as a big doing. Okay, for others, opening weekend at Lambeau, big doing. For some others, opening day of deer hunting, big doing. And in our culture nowadays, our schedules and our wallets are centered on big doings. Our conversations are all about living vicariously through others with what you're doing this weekend. What's your big doing this weekend? The phenomenon called FOMO, the fear of missing out, is a phenomenon caused by a big doing culture. We don't want to miss out on what's happening. But I want to ask the question of us today, any of us getting a little tired of big doings? Where you've hyped yourself up for that concert or that vacation or that next better big doing only to find yourself slightly disappointed, a little depressed, and maybe even despondent when that big doing ends and is over. Guess what? That experience you have at the end of the big doing is part of a bigger doing design. And one I believe actually younger generations are starting to become more suspect of as well. Whether it's the lyrics from Hamilton, which was, you'll never be satisfied, or the line from the greatest showman, all the shine of a thousand spotlights will never be enough. So what could be enough? What big doing could be enough? Who or what would finally be enough? How might even weekly, regular, Sunday morning worship of the Creator of the universe be the biggest doing we have planned in our schedule each week? We're continuing our series, as Ryan mentioned, The Psalms, and we're calling it back to school as we walk through each part of our liturgy in worship. We begin worship every week, entering into and enjoying the forever finished work of Christ. We call that invocation. Then we set our eyes upon the beauty of our Redeemer who does amazing things, a Redeemer who's perfect fair, holy, and loyal. We call that adoration. And last week, we remembered the happiness that can be found in drawing near to God by confessing our shortcomings and sin to Him. We call that confession of sin. And today, we move into what we call in our liturgy assurance of pardon. And Psalm 103 is encouraging us in this assurance of pardon to Remember and respond to the biggest doing ever. What is that? It's a father who rescues his unruly children. The biggest doing ever is a father who rescues his unruly children. Two questions we're going to ask this morning. First question is this. What are we to remember, Chad, about the father who rescues his unruly children? What are we to remember? And secondly, how are we, the unruly children, called to respond to him when we remember this? First, what are we to remember about the father who rescues his unruly children? We're going to see this in the bulk of the passage, verses 2 to 14. Two things we're called to remember mainly in this psalm. The first one is the father's commitment. And the second one is the father's compassion. We'll spend the majority of our time this morning on these two things because they make up the two chambers of God's heart toward his own children. First, we remember the father's commitment. The Hebrew word that's used in the psalm is the word chesed. And it's often translated as steadfast love or loving kindness. And it's a difficult one for us to define because there's layers upon layers of meaning to it. One theologian defines God's commitment, God's hesed, as a completely undeserved kindness and generosity. But one aspect of that definition that needs added to is this unwavering loyalty that God has toward his children. It's defined maybe as loyal love. And you see it throughout the psalm, verse 4 describes the crown that gets put on our head, and half of it, half of that crown is loyal love. Verse 8, it talks about the Lord being merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love that measures the patience God has toward his children. And in verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his hesed, his steadfast love to those, those who fear him. It's the degree of love God has for his own. Hesed. My eyes were opened to a fuller understanding of Hesed when the doctor announced in the operating room to Bliss and myself. It's a boy. And I became a father for the first time. The doctor held up a screaming cadence before his two parents' eyes. And Cadence had done nothing so far in his little five second life but open his mouth breathe a breath and fill the room with the sound of his crying and my heart was overflowing with a love for this kid he didn't know yet who we were as parents he couldn't see us his eyes were squinty he couldn't say our names but we loved him in a way we've never loved anyone before i would do anything for this kid and he's three seconds old. But in order to really fully appreciate this chesed that the father has for his children, we need to view his love he has for all of us as if we were the black sheep of the family. Because the test of a commitment doesn't come when everything's going well. It's tested when the scream that Cadence made in the delivery room becomes a scream of a teenage teenager to a parent saying, I hate you. It's tested when your kid is maybe retching over the toilet after an all-night bender. It's tested when your own flesh and blood cheats on a test, steals from your wallet, lies to your face, wishes you were dead. That's when commitment is tested. And in our sin, parents, we might respond to our kids' unruly behavior with a, I am done with you. But the commitment of the Father God to his children never, ever, ever, ever says those words. We might look at verse 9 and see the Father's anger and see the Father's discipline. He gets tough by scolding us sometimes and disciplining us. He gets angry in his response to our rebellion. But that scolding and anger, friends, is a sign of his commitment to us. And look, look what verse 9 says. It's not permanent. Verse 10 shows us a committed parent who doesn't bring his big guns to our rebellion. No, he doesn't do to us what we've done to him. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. How many of us have a view of God the Father that's so opposite of what's described here in verse 10? When we sin, what do we expect of God? When we sin big, what do we expect of God? I've rejected you, God. You must want to reject me. I've sinned against you. You must want to disown me. But his hesed, his loyal love, doesn't cause him to move away or turn his back from you. It actually is the opposite. He stays put and he leans in. He moves closer. Verse 8 describes him as a parent who is patient, slow to anger, it means long of nose, which means he doesn't respond with an immediate slap back at us. No, he waits to dole out punishment. The Old Testament, friends, has hundreds of chapters a thousand pages of hesed when you read the old testament from the eyes of a parent you might think god you are way too lenient with these people why doesn't he get angrier with the wrestling match that he has with israel why does he keep giving them these second third thousand chances because hesed is a commitment to wait to dole out punishment punishment that is fully deserved That is fully executed, but it's not a punishment that goes on to us. He waits until that punishment can be put onto himself, onto his son. As verse 6 says, He will work righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He will pay for what wrong we've done. He's not the parent of today. I've heard this a lot from teachers Parents who stand behind everything their child says or does, even if their child's actions are clearly wrong and sinful. No, that's not how the father works. He is just and fair to dole out consequences. But his loyal, steadfast love crowns himself with the thorns and you with the jewels. Remember his commitment to you. Look at verses three to five and see all the things David wants us to remember, and he wants himself to remember. The forgiving of all your twistedness, all your iniquity. See that in verse three? With the straight edge of Jesus. The healing of all your STDs and DUIs with the purity and soberness of Jesus, drinking the cup of God's anger. The redeeming of your life from the stink pit of death by jumping in after you. The crowning of you, putting on his steadfast love, his commitment. I, your mine, your mine, what we did in this baptism, you're mine, Eliza. You're mine, Chad. And after crowning the satisfying us with the reward. Of a best life that's going to come later. A perfect life where you're going to be a child again. Where you're never again going to be zapped of energy. He satisfies you with good things. I want to ask us this question in application this morning to this commitment. How is the Lord asking you to remember the big doing of his commitment to you, unruly one? Verse 11 is asking you to measure. Measure the stretch from the heavens to the earth. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his commitment toward those who fear him. Let's measure that for a second. Let's say that's from earth to the sun. Do you know how far that is? That's 92.9 million miles. It's his commitment to you. Let's go a bit further. to heavens? How far is the earth from the edge of the Milky Way galaxy? What we can see. 950,000 light years, which each light year is 6 million miles. 6 million times 950,000. That's his commitment to those who fear him, to those who submit to him as a holy God. So when you fail which I live my life many times, so keenly aware of my failures, remember the greatness of his commitment to you. It makes the assurance nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus so secure when you think of that distance of his commitment. And I want to ask you some questions in response to that commitment. Friends, who in your life right now are you done with? Are you done with them? father is never done with you what sin do you believe would make the father finally throw in the towel on you there is none where are you being asked to wait for him to respond he waited long for you when do you give up on the lost in your life being found never on this side of glory And why? Why would you turn a cheek? Why would you be patient with someone who's slapping you in the face instead of cutting and running? Because he did the same for you. Psalmist doesn't want us to end it there. Hesed is the Father's infinite commitment and heart, and it's half of the crown. The other half is compassion. Translated in verse 4 and 8 as mercy, This is the part of the father's heart that takes action because someone is his own. Someone is part of his family. The original Hebrew is derived from the word womb. That mercy comes from the word womb. It's an active softening and moving of God's heart because you're mine. I've got to do something. I see this when my kids actually are in situations in which their siblings, I love this, are being dissed talked down to by a neighbor or someone else they step up they step in because this is my brother you're talking about they take action and come with their own heart to the scene and verse 7 talks about God making known his way to Moses and his actions to Israel I'm going to step in this is all about a God making a way in which his children can survive even in spite of their sin in which his family members can even stand under his own anger he's going to step in Compassion is a coming alongside with his own heart to protect and prevent his children from being hurt. And verse 13 brings a comparison that I'm sure the Hebrews would read it and think that was rather gutsy to say. It says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. They never thought of the Lord in light of a father. Friends, that was too intimate. God was too holy to be feared, but the Lord uses this softer metaphor of a father to remind them of his tenderness toward them, something that they fought throughout their history to believe. In their minds, God, a holy God, could never stoop so low. But in the picture of a father showing compassion on a little child, we see the Lord's relationship to his people is much more tender than they originally believed. In ministry and in life, friends, there is nothing more tragic to us than the death of a child, right? When we hear news of a parent finding their three-year-old motionless in a pool, or a fourth grader that's been overrun by a car, our hearts ache for the gut-tearing pain that a parent must be experiencing when that happens. That gut-wrenching pain, friends, is a window into God's compassion and mercy. I've heard grieving parents who've lost children, including my brother who lost his 3-week-old son, say say themselves out of their own mouths, "How I wish I could trade my life for their child's life. I'd do it in a heartbeat. If I could jump in that pool and drown myself in order that my baby could live, I would do it. That's compassion. That's mercy. It's active. It's substitutionary. It's so achingly strong. I remember on vacation several years ago when Cadence was about 2 He, without caution or concern, thinking he had a floaty on, just went to the deep end of the pool and jumped in. And my wife had eyes on him on the other side of the pool. But as soon as he jumped, what did she do? Her compassion kicked into full gear. She went in without a beat with her clothes on. And if you know Bliss, she don't like cold pools. (laughs) But she didn't care. That was her boy, who without her intervening would have returned to the dust, to the pit, to the grave. Friends, this is the Father's response to you. The pit of the dead, verse 4 reminds us, was stepped into as Christ pulls his Father's own out of the water. Every leper, every diseased and dying person, Jesus healed, was granted this forgiveness, this new life. As Jesus touched the disease... He was taking on the disease. As Jesus said, you're forgiven of your crime. That guilty verdict was then put over his head. This is God's compassion for you. As verse 11 measures God's commitment, verse 12 measures his compassion. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes his trans- our transgressions from us. East never meets west. The cross will not allow the saint to be guilty of the sin. It is removed to never return. Yes, we do still wrestle in our flesh with sin. But when we stand under the compassion of the Father's will, the cross of Christ, as we stand under the covering of his blood, we are guiltless and we are good. Rescued and made righteous. Righteous. The Father's compassion knows we're helpless without him stepping in. Verse 14 says it. He knows our makeup. He remembers that we are dust. He remembers that we are toast. So what, friends, is our response to the compassion and the commitment found in a God who would give all that he is for his own? Look at verse 1. It's a command David actually speaks and preaches to himself. Soul, you need to bless the Lord. Everything that's in you, David, bless his holy name. He's saying, David, with every breath you have, David, give it back to the Lord. David, with everything that makes you who you are, kneel before your maker. When David remembers The dealings, the big doings of the Lord, remembers the Lord's compassion and commitment for him, he knows nothing better to do than to give it back to the one who saved him. Friends, we must preach the same to our souls and to our minds and to our spirits and to our bodies. In liturgy, when we hear the words of assurance each week Sinner, you are forgiven. Slave, you are free. Dead man, you are resurrected. We can smile through the wet tears of our confessed sin. Bless God. Let me bless him with all that I am. Our service, our worship service, I would hope, gets louder when we hear these assurance of pardon words like a great crescendo. We start the service adoring God for who he is. That's loud, I hope. But we praise God for what he's done in saving us. That's louder, I hope. The other thing that happens in our response, friends, is compassion can become the second half of our crown. As we're committed to lost causes, we also show compassion to those lost causes. We step in to offer help to those who can't help themselves. We sacrifice our time, our resources, our energy to diving in to the pool of people who are lost. But I would describe it not maybe like a pool. This might freak somebody out. i describe it more like an ice-covered lake. Dive in to that ice-covered lake that's filled with the world's walking dead and point them to the only hole in that ice which would make them breathe again. The hand of Christ is reaching down through that hole, pulling people out through his death and through his resurrection. And when we come into worship each week, we come remembering the biggest doing ever made possible by blessing the Lord, a compassionate and committed Father who loves his unruly children by giving up his perfect son. Friends, the more we remember this, the more we will respond to this. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for all your benefits. And thank you for reminding us this morning of all your benefits. Of how your commitment to us is beyond any commitment we could ever have. It's 950 gazillion light years away. It is so large, your commitment to us. Thank you for being a God of Hesed, of loyal love. And Father, thank you for your compassion which in your loyalty, in which, in which your love for us, you dove in into the pit to save your children who were dead. Father, you didn't dive in with a little bit of scar tissue. You, do- you dove into the pit dying yourself so that we could live, putting us on your shoulders and you drowning. We thank you, Father, for that depth of compassion you have as a father and we pray father that our lives would be crowned with compassion and commitment first off compassion which comes from you and commitment to you that as we walk through these doors and leave this place people would say of us church that we are a people who are compassionate we are a people who dive into pits And that people would say of us that we are committed, no matter what the cost, to Christ. I pray, Father, that you would make that work possible. Crown us and remind us of the crown that sits upon our head in making us a compassionate and committed people. We ask this all in Jesus' name.